This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. And we are live with the illustrious, amazing Chase Hughes. How are you doing today? Doing well, man. How are you? I'm fantastic. I wanted to bring you back, obviously because I love having the behavior panel on anyway, but this is sort of significant. In two days, this show is a year old. Yeah. And really, I know I've talked about it before, but I've had a few other people subscribe and things like that, so they may not have heard. But you're the main reason that I actually have this show at all. I don't know if you remember, but back in, what was it, last November, I think it was, you called me. I was actually in Disney, and you said, hey, I want to do some video interviews. <laughs> yeah. I said, let's, no, I said, let's get together and uh, have a bottle of wine and uh, do a video podcast that way. Okay. Well, I wasn't doing video podcasts. And I told you, I'm like, dude, I'm not a video guy. You're like, yeah, "Yeah, okay. Let's have some wine. We'll do it anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but we did it and uh, it was great. I had a great time. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. I I did it in January because I'm, it's an ironic situation. You and I live in the same area. But I'm sure you'll be the first to admit that actually getting together to do something adds like an extra hour each way and everything else. So it's just, almost yeah. easier to just let's go online and then if we try this whole live streaming thing we could have people in the chat yeah which is a lot cooler we get some some people that are able to interact and ask questions exactly and so now here we are a year later when i did that first episode with you i had i think 72 subscribers because i had the channel it's just i wasn't doing anything i just you know dumped um audiograms on there or whatever and now I have um, was uh, thirteen thousand eight hundred and twenty something. Man, that's great! <laughs> I've I've grown a little bit. So it's really really fantastic. I see the dragon's treasure is in here. Wanted to bring him up. He's got a sale going on actually right now, and I'm actually uh, in my fancy vessel here drinking tea of all things. And I have something going with the, with the Dragon's Treasure, the dragonstreasure.com, where if you guys want to buy tea, you get 10% off. And it's it's not like straight tea. It's like the fiddly tea, you know, English tea, all the fancy stuff, the different. Well, it's much fancier than I even know how to comprehend, but it's pretty cool stuff. So everybody check that out. Now, bringing you back today. Our last time we talked, I ended with, what are we going to talk about next time? Yeah. And you, you promised, you said, how to, how to have unstoppable discipline. So take us on a journey. How do we have unstoppable discipline? Well, I think the, uh, the whole concept of discipline is something that I started looking at in I don't know, 1999. And it was fascinating to me just trying to understand what that was. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
we tend to view discipline as willpower, and those things are the same. And I think there's a, a, a very different thing that I'm not exerting discipline the same way I would be willpower. And what's the difference? Well, the way uh, I define discipline is the ability to prioritize the benefit of your future self ahead of the enjoyment of your present self. Mm. So in reality, what that would mean is if you go back, think of all the times you were pissed off at your past tense self. So like Mm -hmm. you stayed up late drinking too much, or you decided to gaff an assignment off or a task at work and then wait until the last minute, or you didn't pay a bill on time, or you spent money on something stupid and then, you know, regretted it a few weeks later. So uh, many of our problems, even smoking or overeating, uh, comes from an inability in the moment to prioritize your future self. And I think that there's once we get into a, just a small process of discipline, even just starting starting off discipline is to start thinking as much as you can of your future self instead of your now self. And there's a ton of stuff you can do. You can go download. Pro, I think it's a free app, but there's an app that will make you look 90 to 95 years old. You know, you can take a selfie and then it'll do something where it'll it'll make you look really old. And what if you printed that out and stuck it on your refrigerator, not just for what you eat or anything like that, but to keep your brain focused on that, that you're going to be out there in the future. There is a future you out there that you're responsible for taking care of. And in reality, it can start small and it becomes once it gets a little bit of momentum, it turns into a snowball because I think it's a very addictive process. So one mm-hmm. night, just tonight when you're going to bed, put get the coffee ready for yourself. Put the cup where it needs to be. Pick up the kitchen. Sacrifice now for the future self. And it sounds so simplistic, but you're doing it for another person. And if it wasn't another person, we wouldn't say we wouldn't be upset at our past tense self. We'd be upset with ourselves. So, we're, you know, that we kind of think in terms of those three. There's a future, there's a now and there's a past. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the single element. So small things, laying out your clothes beforehand, putting something out for yourself, leaving that and starting getting into this, these tiny steps, everything you can think of small little things for yourself tomorrow or a week from now. And just doing that as often as you possibly can. Put put a $20 bill in a pocket of a shirt you're not going to wear for a month and a half because you know you're going to forget about it. And then you'll be grateful because that's where the ultimate part of discipline is when you're feeling lots of gratitude towards your past tense self. So instead of being upset at the past tense self, I'm feeling grateful for the past Mm -hmm. tense self. That reminds me, I'm I'm a lapsed runner at the moment. Eventually, I'll get back into it. But one of the, I I don't know if I'd call it a trick or I guess um, very much in line with that is people who would run in the morning. Running in the morning is a big pain in the ass. And you don't always feel like getting out and running. So they deliberately would do just what you said, but it would be like literally the whole running clothes would be all set out. The shoes would be right there. 
So as soon as they get up there, it's just right there in their face and they'd almost make a, a deal with themselves. So everything would be out for them. They had to put it on. And the rule is simply this. They had to go out the door with their running clothes on and to the mailbox. Now, if they decided at that point, you know what, never mind. I, I'm just not up for it. I'm not going to do it. Then, okay, fine. They can go back in the house. But 99.9% .9 of the time, it was like, well, psh, I'm already out here. So yeah. is that kind of in line with uh, what you're talking about? I think so. And I think in that regard, it's not really concern for your future self. It's you're putting that out to make your future self more likely to do something, which is still yeah. uh, fine. But I think they might have different uh, intent behind each one of those things. So for, for me, I might lay out the running clothes because I don't like looking for them. And if there's mm -hmm. something I don't like doing in the mornings, I'll do it the night before. Or I'll set up as much as I possibly can the night before for future me. Mm -hmm. So in, in reality, so if this is you right now. It, I'm looking forward with concern. I'm looking backwards with gratitude. Okay. And in the present, I might be making a sacrifice, which okay. is fine because my priority is me later, not me now. But the, the big part of that is to force your thinking into that frame of mind. So here's, here's the number one thing that you can do here is it, to bring that into your mind is constantly remind yourself at all times. So put up sticky notes. Is this decision going to benefit me later? Is this, mm. am I thinking about my future self? I'm going to put those pictures up around the house of me looking way older from, from the app I downloaded. <laughs> I'm going to do as much as I can to change my thought process. Because if you think about this, people who overeat, people who use drugs, people who stay up too late, people who have bad habits, people who smoke, people who do any, any habit that you don't want to do is prioritizing your present self. So all of these bad habits that we're thinking of that we would go to a therapist uh, sometimes to fix is putting priority on you now instead of you in the future. So a lot of our issues, like 90% of our issues are, I am failing to get the mindset of caring about future self more than present self. So that's so much of our issues at work, at, at our social lives, in our families, and our friendships, you know, when we're maintaining relationships, especially now when everything's on a screen. And if we think about that, fixing the way that we're viewing our present self and looking forward, I'm always thinking about me in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned with that person than everything else, fixing the overeating or fixing the, I don't want to get up in the morning. I don't want to go to the gym. Fixing all of that stuff is a byproduct it, it happens as a byproduct of shifting my mindset to thinking about future me and prioritizing me in the future. Okay. Out of curiosity, here's a question that came in. Do you think that our level of natural discipline is predetermined at birth? No, okay. not, not whatsoever. So you're definitely into nurture over nature on, in that regard? With discipline, yes. Okay. Because I think there is you can cultivate discipline and uh, I, I've never met anybody that was really born with it. 
But hmm. I will say that there are people who are born with the ability to sacrifice in the present for the future. And if you think about it, you look back to your high school, your middle school, elementary school, the, all your friends who went to medical school, all the friends who, who uh, left high school and became a doctor, a lawyer, and were really successful. If you look back into high school, when everybody else went and partied, they might still show up, but they're going to be late because they got their crap done before the party instead of after the party. So they had that ability back then. And I'm, I'm not sure if we're born with it or if we're born with a certain level of it, but I think everybody can reach a pretty high level of discipline. But those, those people that are successful later in life have that ability. And there's even been studies done. I think this was at the university of Connecticut. There was another one done at, some Hampton University that had Hampton in the name. <laughs> uh, but they, they studied these kids from second grade until they were 40. Harvard mm. also did another one, which is the longest running study of its kind. And they found that the, the number one thing that all of the ones who were successful had in common as children was the ability to delay gratification. Mm. And I thought that was an incredible thing. And if we're cultivating, cultivating discipline or forcing discipline on ourselves, try these tiny little self deprivations. Like if I usually take sugar in my coffee, cut it off for a day. Prove to yourself that you are in charge. So get, get that back and start proving to yourself that you can exert control. Even if it's those really small things and small steps, that's the self deprivations are the way to start proving that to yourself because our, our minds operate off of proof. Somebody tells us something, we're wondering if there's evidence for it. We're wondering if uh, even when people suffer from a lack of confidence, they're waiting for proof from their outside environment before they act a certain way. Instead of giving themselves permission, they're waiting for the environment to do so. So that's one way we can trick our primitive brain into having more discipline is to putting those things together in little piecemeal fashion, those little small self deprivations to prove it to yourself that you are in control. Those uh, self-deprivations almost seem like the opposite philosophy of the uh, participation trophy lifestyle that we're in at the moment. Yeah. I, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think we're going to be with that uh, <laughs> lifestyle for a long time. <laughs> um, Dr. Wood, who's a previous guest we've had on, uh, is saying that we are our DNA plus experiences. Yeah, that's beautifully said. So, Okay. I actually have a question that came in over locals. Um, I have a, a locals page now and I put out so there can be questions asked ahead of time for people who might not make it. And it's from Gavin Stone. I know you know Gavin Stone. You bet. And uh, he's saying, could you please tell him I took his advice and bought a journal and I suck at it? So what would you recommend to Gavin, the non-journalist? The non-journalist. So I... Uh... I have it over here. I have a probably a, a two and a half, three foot stack of journals from the last 10 years or so. And I think journaling is the steering wheel of your life. And I I honestly believe everyone that I've talked to that's ever done it, that getting control over your behaviors and your habits, journaling is one of the best ways to do it. And I keep a journal... That's not like, here's what I did today or a dear diary kind of thing. I read a book. Every, every valuable piece of information I get out of a book goes into that journal. 
And if I'm in a phone call, the notes from that call go into that journal with a date. But I also mm -hmm. use the journal on a daily basis to track, you know, my personal behavior. Did I get out of bed on time? Just like I, I keep a, a chart, just like a kindergartner, uh, like where they little change their card from green to yellow if they do something silly in the class. I do that to myself regularly. Did I get out of bed on time? And I keep these, I keep track. And I think the awareness of whether or not I'm failing in a certain area and tracking that stuff is almost all you need. You don't really need to make some giant course correction. The awareness alone is often enough to push us over the edge to, to get us starting to move in the right direction, just to make that one degree course change that's going to make a difference six months from now. Like a nudge? Yep, that's it. And, and I think the, the nudge happens as a byproduct. I use that word a bunch tonight. But oh. the nudge and, and the change in your behavior is a byproduct of your awareness of the patterns that you've started to exhibit. Okay, the journals. I'm, I'm curious about something, though. I, I would worry about you mentioned there's stacks and stacks of the journals. Is it the act itself of keeping the journal that, uh, for example, I know that if you take notes, it's been shown a lot by writing and physically writing, not typing, but actually physically writing the notes. It will help you retain information better sometimes because you're having to listen, interpret, and then write it down in a different medium. So you're kind of revisiting the subject multiple times. Are these journals, especially when they're copious, are they something you go back to and tabulate? Or is it just the act of taking the journal itself and you're not necessarily going back through everything you did in the past. It's just kind of sort of your way of documenting as you go and reinforcing. Yeah, I, th I think I know what you mean. And I think the, the journal itself is, I don't go back and look at my little ratings of myself at the end of the day, but I do go back and read all of my notes. I'm watching, a, uh, I don't know, this morning I watched a Bob Proctor uh, YouTube video and took maybe a paragraph of notes out of an hour long video. But yeah, so in a week or two, I'll probably go back and really dissect what I got out of that video. And I think writing it does help, but I think revisiting it makes it twice as helpful or it does for me. Okay. And uh, are these uh, thinner notes like distilling it? Like um, in a way, because when you revisit it, I'm guessing, I don't know about you, but I'll forget it in an hour. So I didn't know if that those notes are like your takeaways and say, okay. And then the reinforcement of them a week later, maybe locks it into longer term memory. I think so. And I revisit mine pretty regularly. So I think, I think that's uh, something that really can help. And a journal, no matter, there's no wrong way to do it. I have mine designed in, in three sections. I have one that's like planning. So I have little calendar stuff in there. The meat of the whole thing, most of the blank pages in there are just for regular notes. I'm reading a book or an article or I'm taking notes on a phone call and making a list, things like that. And then the back section is going to be for serious key takeaways from books, serious key takeaways. So I take them from another section, put them in there and then goals and, and, and setting goals. And that's all going to be in, in the in the back section. That's just how I do it. 
Okay. And speaking of notes and paying attention to everything, I have a comment here. It is interesting. I definitely want to address. I wish Eric would pay attention to Chase when he's talking and look at questions coming in after. And I, I can appreciate that, but there's this small problem that I am kind of trying to attend not only to the conversation with Chase, but also the chat here on the side, yeah. things that are coming in. And while I would love to be hanging out, this is sort of a job to me. And I do need to be considerate of my audience who I, I love you to death, Chase, but my audience is a little more important in the greater scheme of things. I get it. And the whole reason you're able to see that is because you were reading through those. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks for Yeah. There's the irony. Um, and then here we go. How do you deal with the negative self-talk that says you will not succeed? And I know Rory, actually. Cool. I think on a, on a regular basis, I went through this for 15 years and probably some, some change. And I still do. I think it, it never really goes away. I think that on a, on a very regular basis, we're doing something to change our, I don't want to say frequency because I know people will freak out about it, but we're, we're changing our vibration. We're changing, let's say we're changing the quality of our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And if we get into the law of attraction, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> I can sum up the law of attraction in four words just four words, and that is responsibility for your thoughts. So if if there's ever a time when something's coming in that's negative, we obviously want to change that. So if I'm brainwashing a person or brainwashing myself, I'm going to do the same thing. It's, it's a four-step. Brainwashing is a four-step process. I wrote this process for people, and it follows a four-step formula. It's focus, emotional involvement, agitation, and repetition. Fear. Yeah, it spells out fear. And that exact model is the best way to do that. So I'm changing what I'm focusing on. I'm making sure that I'm emotionally involved in it because I'm my limbic system that makes all of my decisions doesn't speak English. So an affirmation is useless useless Mm. unless there's some kind of emotion or feeling attached to it. And we're actually feeling what that means. So we, an affirmation would work even if it was in a sound that had no verbal meaning to us at all, no syntax, as long as it produced an emotion because the emotions and the sensory experiences is how we make most of our decisions. And we, you know, we see somebody walking out of a Best Buy with a big ass TV that they just bought. If you stopped them and said, hey, why are you buying this TV? They're going to give you like, oh, well, it has this dimension and then these megapixel, you know, I don't know anything about electronics. (laughs) Uh, But in reality, no one's ever going to say I was influenced by advertising. I was emotionally influenced by my neighbor who got one that was three inches smaller and I wanted to get one that was bigger. Nobody's going to say that. So the, the emotional brain, the mammalian brain, its job is to make most of our decisions and our human brain, which is sits on top, it, the neocortex takes the credit and then legitimizes why it made the decision. Well, and that, that's been said, right? I mean, we, we make our decisions, then we go through our justifications. Yeah. Pretty much universally. Right. And so, let me let me say one more thing about this negative thought 
patterns here. I have a brain back here, but you can't see it. So if, uh, if you're watching this video right now and you stick your fingers in your ears, that is our mammalian brain here right here. So right here, oh, my screen's backwards. It's hard. <laughs> so right in this area is our mammalian brain. So our brain kind of started out developing in layers and I'll skip over all that stuff. But that part of the brain right there doesn't speak English. So here's what you need to do. If we have something going on that's causing this panic attack or anything like that, causing fear or negative beliefs, we need to understand neurology. And this sounds so nerdy, but let me unpack it. The neurology is a brain that is millions of years old, millions of years old, mm -hmm. that hasn't changed. It hasn't really evolved or changed from when we were getting attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. So what it's trying to do, that brain has not changed since it was protecting you from a saber-toothed tiger. So now when anything causes stress in this modern day world, even if it's on the screen of your iPhone, the brain doesn't know the difference. It's still a, a mammal that's a million years old. So what it's trying to do is protect you from a saber tooth tiger or falling off a cliff or a rattlesnake. That's what it's trying to do. So one thing that might help you a whole lot when any of those things start coming in is just to say the phrase, there are no tigers. Hmm. So on, on one hand, we're calming down that brain just a little bit, but we're reminding ourselves that that is, that is a million-year-old animal that is not trying to sabotage us. It's there to try to keep you safe, but we need to, we need to address it and speak to it like a kid, like a million-year-old animal. Like, I, I appreciate the help. I, I'm not in danger here. I'm not going to die. And I'm going to just change what I'm thinking about as fast okay. as I can. And on that note, um, Dr. Wood is saying uh, the beauty of being DNA plus experiences is that everything we do changes us and everyone we interact with kind of continuing on that earlier and with what you're talking about here now. And then uh, this coincides very much with what you were saying about putting off for tomorrow. Um, the chief cause of failure and unhappiness is trading what you want most for what you want now. Yeah, that's great. That's oh, that was Zig Ziglar. Fabulous quote. <laughs> that's I've never funny. read that before. It, it kind of fits in almost exactly with what you were saying. It really does. All right. Um, let me check a couple more questions in here. So on... The discipline path. Now, you, you've you been putting this into action. I think you were saying, what, you're up at 4 a.m. every day writing? I write every seven days a week from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. Okay. Seven, and what what made you prioritize into the writing? Or or have you always? Because I, I feel like you've kind of shifted more and more into the writing, especially fiction. Um, what caused that, that change in you? Is it external influences or something you always wanted? Well, I, I've done nine deployments and still writing, learning how to write fiction is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I needed, I, I need peace and quiet to write. So I have to get up at 4 a.m. if I'm going to have anything remotely resembling that. 
but that's that's like the golden sacred hour for me. It just happens to be when my brain works the best. And I want all of my hardcore creative stuff front loaded in the in the front of the day. And again, that's just me. I'm not I don't I don't pretend to have some kind of formula that that's magic. But that's that works for me. And waking up at 4 a.m., I know I'm I'm up up before 95, 99% of the people on the East Coast, Eastern Seaboard of the United States. And that feels good. That feels really good. <laughs> of course, you have the West Coast, and they might still be up. <laughs> yeah. Going the other way. No doubt. So what, um, not to harp on that, but when did you start to kind of shift into the fiction? I mean, is that giving you joy? You said it's the hardest thing you've ever done. Is that fulfilling you because it's the hardest thing you've ever done? It's, it's extremely fulfilling. Uh, except for the editing process. So I'm paying editors to tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, okay. A lot of times, you know, they go through and they're, I open the word doc in the morning and there's 16,000 uh, comments that I've got to go through. And that's my morning, you know, during the, the editing phase, which I'm going through right now. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, a burden and a, a, a benefit at the same time because you, you have somebody there to help you along the way. And you also really have to struggle when there's, you know, on one hand, there's, hey, we need to say this a bit different. Or I get a comment that says, hey, you can just delete this chapter. The whole <laughs> chapter that you spent, like in two, I'll spend uh, three weeks sometimes writing two sentences in the book. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll get that, you know, formed into a chapter and I'll get a comment that says, hey, you just need to delete this. And then I'll get comments that I don't even understand at all. And they'll say, Hey, the, the antecedent of this pronoun is unclear. <laughs> I just I have no idea what that actually means. I've got that this morning. Oh, perfect. Uh, okay. So on that, I, I was curious because you, you also do nonfiction too. So let's say yeah. you get the dreaded quote writer's block. Do you go in and write your shopping list just to be spitting something out? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to change gears and let me write an article on something right now because those damn two sentences aren't coming. Yeah. So wh- whatever does feel cool to me, like you know, not, not just cool, but like whatever's inspiring to me. And in my words, I would just say whatever feels cool to, to write about, I'll, I'll switch over to that immediately. Not even, I won't experience writer's box for more than five seconds. Cause I'll just, I'll completely switch to something else. I use an app called Microsoft OneNote to write, a hundred percent of everything that I write. And hmm. I'll just, I say, Oh, this isn't working. I'm going to open this other folder called whatever mind control or, you know, whatever it is. Okay. And, and your books and your, your nonfiction and fiction definitely overlap quite a lot. They do. Um, what do you outline your project? Do you just write into the project? So, I mean, I guess essentially when you're coming up with a book or a story, do you know what's what happened at the end and you're filling it in between or are you discovering as you go, what, what's going on with you? There's a little of both. Uh, so the, the book phrase seven, I thought the title was so badass. I came up with the title before I even knew what it was and started writing the book. Hmm. 
So I wrote the book around the title. And my newest book called The Belgrade Archer, uh, mm-hmm. which is a content, like a sequel book. Uh, that book, I basically wrote the entire book in four paragraphs. And then I continuously just, it, I guess the four paragraphs are kind of like an outline, mm-hmm. but I just reference back to that the entire time. So there's never really an outline, so to speak. And I have no idea how the book's going to end until I get to the end. Okay. So it, it is a, a, a bit of a hybrid. And also, did you see this as a series or did you say, let me write a book and then suddenly it became a sequel? I had no idea people would like it. I thought people were going to hate it. Well, what I, if you did? What before you I published it, I researched how quickly I could yank it off of Amazon in case it was uh, embarrassingly bad. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think we would like it at all. Really? Yeah. Well, you did some beta testing, right? I mean, I you spend it with my clients, like right. who like my kind of crap. So I didn't know, like, you know, Aunt Donna, you know, who lives in wherever, is going to be buying it and having it on the beach somewhere. I didn't know if she was going to like it. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, so, what inspires you? In, in terms of it, I mean, I, m- many fiction writers are also fiction fans. Uh, who do you read? Who, who um, do you look up to? I think uh, my favorite writers would be David Baldacci, Dan Brown, and number one would be John Grisham, for sure. Okay. And you kind of have a, well, you're going sort of for the Dan Brown pace or, or more similar in that regard, right? Pretty similar to Dan Brown or uh, maybe a Tom Clancy. Probably be very inspirational to me. But less technical. <laughs> That's yeah. Clancy gets pretty, pretty um deep. Yeah, I read uh, one book he spent six pages describing the the interior of a radio communications room. Yeah. And I think I, I might have put the book down at that point. I don't I don't remember. <laughs> well, he he also has a research team. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, uh, you know, Tom Clancy's like um, Patterson. One, he's dead. But even before then, he's almost, I would say, a publisher over an author anymore. I think, yeah, a lot of guys are going that way. Mm -hmm. Patterson. Franchise, uh, the name. And there's one of my favorite authors, Vince Flynn, Mm -hmm. who writes a series called, called the Mitch Rapp series. Yeah, he died. Yeah, he died, and he's still publishing books. It's like authors are not allowed to die anymore. Their their name is so valuable, they're not, they can't die. Actually, that's fun, though, because, okay, Robert Ludlum has published more books since his death than when he was alive. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah, oh, by far. Oh, yeah, the, the numbers aren't even comparable. But um, my favorite case of this is Lee Child, who writes Jack Reacher. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. He retired. He said, I'm done. My son's taken over. And I just could not help but think because like Robert B. Parker is one of my favorite authors. He died literally writing. I mean, he dropped dead heart attack on the, uh, you know, on his typewriter. So I, he, he died in the saddle, but I just love the idea of Lee child saying, okay, I did this, created this massive series, did all that. And you know, I'm done. Uh, I'm going to give it to my son. He'll continue writing on and 
I'm just going to enjoy the uh, fruits of my labor and just chill out. So yeah, there's something like beautiful. The They're franchising. It's great. So what is Chase planning to do? Are you planning to franchise? I know you've, you're talking to people, I think, in Hollywood. Can you go into any of that? Yeah, we're talking to some uh, people. We've got some we've got some hardcore offers to do a uh, television series for the, the new books based on the new books, the fiction books. Okay. All right. So to jump back to a subject matter you hear, what neuroscience books would you recommend for a beginner? Neuroscience books. Um, I've never read a neuroscience book that wasn't a textbook. So I, I may not be a good source, but I can tell you my favorite YouTube video of all time was a a neuroscientist being interviewed on the Rich Roll, Rick Roll podcast. Hmm. And it's called Hack Your Behavior. It is the best ever. And if you're wanting to learn neuroscience, uh, the number one video I recommend to everybody is called Neuroanatomy made ridiculously simple. It's an hour long video, but it's uh, of a doctor talking about uh, neuroanatomy and how everything works together in the brain. I think it's pretty cool. And does that go into the um, uh, lizard brain, etc.? Yes, they talk about it, and it's just a theory. It's a triune brain theory, is what that's called. Made ridiculously simple. Yeah. I'd remember to put this in the show notes. No. I didn't realize until just now I can see comments over here. Yeah, there you go. I had it clicked on private chat. <laughs> oh, what says Eric? Don't scare him. Why would I? Sc- I'm not going to scare Chase. Trust me. He's a- Eric's a scary guy. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. And what is the subject of the painting that's Yorktown behind you, right? Yes. So this is a. Uh, called The Surrender of Lord Cornwallis, the painting. It's got the, uh, I can't point because this camera's uh, reversed. So it's got the (laughs) French on one side, the Americans on one side. And uh, this is the representative of Lord Cornwallis handing a saber over to the Americans. But the painting is a central piece of the phrase seven book. So now I bought one and now it's Mm. uh, behind my desk. I've noticed that you tend to talk about Yorktown quite a bit in obscure references. Why? What What is your fascination with it? It seems like Yorktown has a, a real magnetism to you. It does. I first went to Yorktown when I'm doing a little research for the book. And within five minutes, I thought, man, this is everything needs to be centered around Yorktown, Virginia. And if you read phrase seven, this uh, secret agency is based there in Yorktown. Keep in mind, it is a fiction book. So the secret agency is is based there in Yorktown. And the reason that they're based in Yorktown in present day is based on this painting uh, behind me. And that's why I keep going back there because I keep having to write about it, for one. But I, mm-hmm. I would also I also love Yorktown, the feeling of it. So you go there. I mean, it's fun in history. I don't know if uh, the audience is familiar with it. You go out there. I don't know what it's like now with COVID, but 
they would have reenactments of the battles and people dress in period garb and things of that sort. Kind of uh, like Williamsburg. It's, it's sort of that colonial parkway uh, trail, if you will. All these things tied together. Speaking of which. So we're both reading happened. through comments now. Now that I can bring it up on the screen, I can't stop looking at them. <laughs> I'm well, reading uh, Mary Grace Kirby. Perhaps. Maybe so. Who? Who? What? What? She said, uh, maybe it's a past life. Oh, were you in the past life? Yeah. I don't know. Let me see. Um, okay, somebody asked a previous question, and I missed it, Eva, I guess. Um, are you aware of the group, uh, the work on growth mindset of Stanford neurologist Anth- Andrew Huberman? Yes. And the YouTube video that I said was my favorite on the entirety of YouTube was Andrew Huberman. Yes. So he is... A badass. I really like that guy. And I think his his message is great, but not just that, how he can communicate the nerdiest, like super dry professor kind of neurology stuff to everyday people and still make it captivating and interesting. I think that was that was one of the things that really pulled me into that video. Victoria, thanks for getting the book. (laughs) I was just gonna bring that up. Okay, we're gonna go nuts here. This is why with guests, I actually, I, I forget to mention that there's a chat on the side. All right. What do you think about Freemasons? Will it be in your book? Uh, I don't know. Freemasons are a pretty cool organization. I think they're older than Christianity, if I'm correct. I think they date back to King Solomon. And Christianity didn't come around until around... Technically, around 300 AD, when the Bible came out. Oh, okay. I guess the Bible wasn't been... written until 300 years after everything. Right, right. And then you had the conclave. I forget when that was, where they made the determination about whether Mary was a virgin and all that stuff. But yeah, now we're digging into Dan Brown. Yeah, the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> okay, so on, on the flip side, uh, we asked you about fiction. What about um, behavioral science? I mean, I, I know that you, know, you talk about being in Hawaii stationed and almost like you were kind of influenced by the pickup society a little bit, but who who did you start with in studying mind control behavior or whatever? And how about you just tell us who you'd recommend still to this day, not necessarily who not to read? Uh, as far as mind control specifically? Oh, well, okay. First off, I have trouble putting you into a box because you're kind of a mix. You do body language, negotiation, interrogation. Um, I think it's all one art form. Okay, so you agree with me that it's all in a spectrum. Yeah. And it all goes yeah. together. Okay. So we'll just say behavioral engineering as a whole. Sure. Is that how you'd lay it down or social engineering as part of it. I don't know which way you'd go. Yeah. Either, I don't care. That's just a, it's just syntax. Okay. Is that a micro, a macro thing possibly like social, um, wider behavioral or what, you know, one's wider, one's narrower. What? I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I just, I just say behavioral engineering most of the time. Okay, these are the kinds of things that I want to think about over a beer or a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and break it down. <laughs> It'd be easier to do that with a bottle of wine. 
for but sure. Think, uh, one of the people that I, I studied under, uh, he is a clinical hypnotherapist, but he also wrote books about mind control using hypnosis. And his name is Dantalian Jones. And I can't remember how much, uh, how long it's been since his book was published, but I think his book's called Mind Control 101. That's mm. literally the title of his book. He's a great guy, and uh, he's been a mentor to me for quite some time. Dantalian Jones. Really? And Scott Rouse had to hype in. Tan Daddy has mastered many skills. That is correct. And so, which actually sounds almost like Dantalian, which is a very interesting wordplay, but... What is the history of Tan Daddy? So uh, just a couple of days ago, we recorded a behavior panel episode and we, we bullshit for 30 minutes or 45 minutes before we even start recording. So we're all just hanging out, talking, and Scott will take whatever he chooses is, you know, his favorite uh, 12 second clip to throw in as like the intro part of that discussion. And uh, we were talking about what is the kind of the creepiest comments that we've gotten on YouTube. And I said, I've gotten proposed to in a YouTube comment. And uh, another comment I got from a, a guy in one of our YouTube videos is, is said just chase tan daddy was the comment. So that became the entire intro to our latest YouTube video. Love it. Okay, so now, now it's going to meme. Um, you can have a cup and a T-shirt. I mean, you got what you got, Chase. So that needs what to you got. I think we should change my name uh, on the show. Well, you could do it right now, huh? Tan Daddy. <laughs> It'd be what you got, Tan Daddy. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about a little bit behind the scenes. Who is the um, biggest instigator out of the bunch? Oh, it's Scott. <laughs> 100%. So you'd say Scott's the devil? Yeah, well, Scott and I are both both do that stuff. We do both poke a whole lot. But, you know, we all, all three of us gang up on uh, Mark. So Mark will join oh. the Zoom meeting after. So me, Greg, and Mark, or me, Greg, and Scott will all be sitting there and then Mark will join the waiting room and wait for Scott to add him in. And then every time Mark joins, we'll do something ridiculous. <laughs> All three of us. Uh, so sometimes, you know, we'll be uh, just talking about something completely random or inappropriate. And other times we'll just all three pretend like we're frozen. And <laughs> something's wrong with uh, Mark's computer. So we do that uh, every I think every time that we all get on for to record an episode. And of course, Mark's reaction probably is more entertaining than what you're doing. Yeah. And every time. And so Mark now, when he, he logs into zoom, he's just waiting for something. To happen now. <laughs> so who's the adult in the room, Greg? Oh yeah. Greg's Greg's the, uh, bring everybody back to reality guy for the group. <laughs> All right. On the, this note, uh, Eva, uh, do you analyze each other on the behavior panel? And how would you stop yourself from doing it if you don't want to do it? I think uh, a lot of people think that 
where we've got this stuff turned on 24 seven and I see more than most people. So I, I might notice your blink rate or your breathing rate unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And then if it shifts, I might be conscious of it, but I don't consciously do any of that stuff anymore. So reading people is not something I ever turn off. I just happen to choose friends that are just really genuine people. So my need to turn on the reading people mode never exists. So that never mm-hmm. really comes on. I have genuine girlfriend. I have genuine friends. I have the genuine <laughs> guys on the on the behavior panel that 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 never really becomes an issue. So I, I don't think I've ever caught myself reading them, except for uh, watching Greg react to uh, videos and stuff. Oh come on now! I know you're reading Scott saying, "What's he going to do? What's he got planned?" I, I know there's got to yeah. be a little bit of that with your little pens and cups and t-shirts and <laughs> uh charlie had a good question there uh yes i have uh but okay. they were in, <laughs> i love that <laughs> they were in the middle east um wait oh must have been a different question uh sorry uh david miscavige body language what do you think of him he's the guy who runs scientology if you're not familiar i haven't seen him i don't know much about him at all Okay. Have you looked? Okay. You're in line with a lot of that. Um, have you looked into cults at all? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So actually this is almost a segue and if folks are patient about it, I appreciate it. Um, wait, Oh, is this the question you answered? Have you ever met a serial killer or mass murderer? Yeah. Yes, I have, but they were in the, the middle East. Okay. So nobody here in the States, um, that you know of. Yep. That I know of. Okay. Um, let me see. And then on that line, are techniques for reversing mind control, the same, whether quote, deculting or other circumstances. Mind control and culting are different things. Very, very, very different things. So if we're talking about the culting thing, we're talking about strict adherence to a certain set of beliefs typically uh, following an ideology and and almost a hero worship of one leader, isolation from friends, isolation from social networks, a new uh, group of terminology that other people don't know, extreme love at the beginning, and then it becomes something called fractionation, where there's lots of love and then punishment or neglect or people turning their backs away from you. So that is way different than mind control. But getting deprogrammed out of a cult is completely different. It's a completely different process. I work with a company that helps people get out of cults right now who's based Mm. out of London, and they have a process that's very different to that. But what's interesting is they follow a very similar process to the process of brainwashing. And people hear the word brainwashing, And literally, the recipe for brainwashing is a psychological approved therapy called aversion therapy, approved by the American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That's the recipe that was discovered for brainwashing when the United States was afraid of our soldiers being brainwashed in Korea to say that they no longer like America, America is a bad country, and they were signing these papers of their own free will and 
if you think about the fear factor of that, a person's wife back here in the United States, or back then it was mostly just wives who were left mm-hmm. at home. And she not only has to worry about her husband getting killed, but if he does come home, is he a, a sleeper agent? Right. Because he's been brainwashed. So that the fear didn't just play on the troops. If I get captured, I'm going to be brainwashed because of these secret techniques that Koreans have. Uh, I'm going to go home and I might kill people back at home. So that was a tremendous, the brainwashing wasn't really that real. They just used some really simple stuff that if I talked about it right now, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds, that's stupid. What about going further to the Manchurian candidate um, concept level? Mm-hmm. What about it? Well, I'm I'm just curious. Is that going down the same path just further? And I think you've talked a few times about wanting to have the opportunity to meet Siran Siran. Yeah, I tried to go meet him in prison. Uh, it was two days after his final parole hearing, which he got denied for. He's in prison in San Diego or just mm-hmm. outside of San Diego. And it didn't happen. I had everything set up and it, it didn't it didn't go through. But the Splitting a person's personality is something that's been done at least since the early 50s when it's been done on purpose. And this was done by a guy named Dr. George Estabrooks, who worked with J. Edgar Hoover, another guy named Milton Erickson, Aldous Huxley, Margaret Mead. We're all together doing a lot of this stuff. This is at, at J. Edgar Hoover. And he MK spoke. Ultra, right. What's that? Tied in with MK Ultra, right? It was heavily. And they split the personality of a few army officers. And I have all of the research on this stuff that has never been released. And they use this stuff to, to split a personality to where one side of the, the soldier's personality would carry secrets. And the other side was the normal soldier who had, who was the real human. So then uh, only a code word could activate this alter personality. So they would send him over enemy lines with the secret information. So even if he was captured or tortured, these secrets that he was carrying in his head wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily come out. Then when he gets to the other side or gets to where he's going, the guy on the other side could say, it's a moonlit night or, you know, whatever the, the code word mm-hmm. is and activate this alter ego. And it's been, it's a pretty simple process, actually. And there's even doctors that do it accidentally here in the United States. And there's a condition called iatrogenic dissociative identity disorder, which just means doctor-created multiple personality disorder. So a doctor can create multiple personalities on accident without actually meaning to. And that's a whole nother discussion. But I, is this similar to, and sorry to interrupt on that, is that similar to the uh, the satanic panic and the preschool stuff where, you know, repressed memories are sometimes injected by the doctor accidentally? Or yeah. is that just something similar? It's similar, very similar. But it's always great, you know, you read uh, a lot of this research and you see that most of the doctors who are participating were not evil to begin with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them that we don't hear about with the MK Ultra thing backed out. And the government just kind of gave a bunch of dipshits free reign over the, <laughs> the, the realm of psychiatry who severely violated the Hippocratic Oath, their, their solemn vow as, as a healthcare provider. 
to do no harm. Well, isn't that kind of a problem with some of these fields? Like, uh, as an example, most cops, for example, are fantastic, generous people that put their life down. I mean, uh, amazing people. However, there is an attraction to the field, and they try to do psychological tests and everything else to help weed them out. And this is not only, you know, just bullies who are sometimes attracted to the field, but even all the way up to a serial killer who tries to inject themselves in the case because they really want to manipulate. So isn't that kind of a, um, a potential problem anytime you're dealing with the quote dark arts or whatever? Absolutely. And you need some, some training to be able to spot those people. And I think the police are doing all they can for now. Right, and that's why I, I don't want to criticize them. I'm just saying that, you know, that there are people who are really, really trying Absolutely. And yeah. the more clever ones can maybe get in there. Uh, somebody brought up here, and I, I was going to ask him myself because I've had uh, John Fitzgerald on who hey, uh, helped put him away. Ted Kaczynski was um, thought of to be part of MK Ultra, the Unabomber. I've done research on MK Ultra for 15 years. I've never seen his name on a single document. Doesn't, okay. doesn't mean it's not there, but. I've seen research that's never been released to the public, and I've still never seen his name, even casually mentioned in a letter. Okay, so you've seen the Harvard students that were mm -hmm. given the LSD and all that? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I know that he was at Harvard at the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean... His um, name was never on a, on a manifest or, I don't know, whatever they'd call a patient list. Okay. Let me see. Uh, somebody asked... Have you ever read uh, Tom O'Neill's book on Manson and the links with MKUltra? No, I haven't. Okay. I think that's relatively recent. And wow, Anything to do with, with serial killer stuff, I hate it. I, I can't stand okay. like this Richard Ramirez guy that we just did on the behavior panel. Mm, yeah. Never heard of him in my life nice until Scott told us uh, what the topic of the video was. I'd never heard of it. Well, okay, Scott. Um, okay, well, let's go back to the panel. Everybody likes to talk about the panel, but um, Scott loves psychopaths. Yeah. That's kind of a little pet thing for him, from what I've seen. What is everybody else like? What do you like? You mean in terms of diagnostic statistical manual of psychology? <laughs> well, or just or, or a particular interest. Like, I feel like Scott is very, very interested in psychopaths. That's something that, I don't know if it entertains him, but he is very interested in it. I've heard him talk about psycho psychopathy more than any of you. And I just naturally assume that each of you has a um, particular subject that's interesting to you. You like to count, I hear. Count? Yeah, like heartbeats and blink rates. and Yeah, I do a lot of that. <laughs> I think I'm most passionate about anytime somebody is influenced, persuaded, or made to agree to do something that they otherwise would not do. Hmm. So false confessions are fascinating to me. The reason that a uh, highly intelligent, highly socially intelligent CEO would join a cult is fascinating to me and and what happened in those scenarios. And I've spent the better part of my life trying to distill all of those extremely enhanced persuasion techniques for military usage. 
And I, I didn't realize until just a few years ago that they had some serious therapeutic uh, application. And now I'm starting to teach a whole lot of clinicians and psychotherapy providers in, in my training. Okay. You brought up North Korea. Did you read Lifton? Is it, you know, coming out of that? No, bit? never read it. Okay. Robert Lifton is the guy who quote came up with the definition of a cult, I guess, if you will. And he studied North Korean prisoners quite literally I forgot what it was, his um, thought uh, reform. I'd have to look it up, but he and Margaret uh, Sanger, I believe, are the big psychologists with the cult side. Okay, so I've, I've maybe her name appeared first on the research. I've read, I think, almost everything Margaret Singer's put together. Okay. Yeah, I, I believe he's actually still alive. He's like 90 something. Really? So you, you better go look him up quickly. Yeah, I need to give him a call. <laughs> All right. Um, so the, you're into that. Uh, do you ever, do you ever study Kahneman? Which to me is, you know, uh, I've heard you know a cult is really a confidence person who just keeps doing the con on the same people, or conning the same people over and over. I think there may be some, maybe a little bit of difference there, but. I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, Frank Abagnale and and the okay. life the life that he's led. I even have a YouTube video on, well, touching on Frank Abagnale mm-hmm. and discussing the serious benefits of overconfidence and why people who are overly confident have an unfair advantage over other people, like Frank Abagnale did. He walked through the airport with that pilot's uniform on like a badass and had no idea, you know, where the cockpit was basically in an airplane. So overconfidence, you might be a dumbass, but it still gives you an unfair advantage. And I wanted to go through the evolutionary psychology, why that happens and how to do it for yourself in the YouTube video that I did. Have you met him? No, I haven't. I'd love to. Oh, you know, Jordan Harbinger. I know he's had him on, so you might be able to get him. Yeah, I'll text Jordan. So, seriously, I, I, I want to get Frank Abnail on myself. I think it's a interesting uh, person uh, for certain. Um, on that note of cults, hypnosis, mind control, things like that, I asked you last time we were on if somebody could be hypnotized against their will, and you were kind enough to respond to that. And I also asked Christina Lennon, who yeah. I introduced you to, I believe. Yeah. Good friend of um, mine now. Oh, well, Good awesome. Now. Awesome. I, I love connecting really cool people. I wanted to tell my kids of where I was FaceTiming with Christina just a few days ago. Oh, you and uh, I said, I was telling my kids, like, come in here. This is the, the lady who hypnotized Simon Cowell. And they're like, no. But they got to meet her and they got to meet the dog. It was great. It was fun. Yeah. Well, Princess is retired. I know that. So. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, Christina is amazing. She is. I had you guys both on because Scott Adams essentially stated that nobody can be hypnotized against their will. And you both contradicted him. Now, what I have not shared, I mean, some of the people who follow the channel and saw it on Twitter may have seen it, but Scott Adams actually did respond to the um, to Christina and I. Yes, to the two of you. And I thought it would be kind of cool if I shared that right now. Because I don't think you've actually seen it before. 
Awesome. And he was very cool. Here's a micro lesson on hypnosis. Not how to do hypnosis, but a specific question that people have been asking me. And the question is this. Can you use hypnosis to get somebody to do something that they don't want to do? Now, when I interviewed uh, Nikki Klein, who was involved with the Nexium uh, uh, organization, which the news calls a cult, but that's an opinion, not an not a objective statement. Um, when I was talking to her, I said during the interview that, in my opinion, uh, you, can't hypnot- you cannot hypnotize people to do things that they don't want to do meaning that are deeply against their you know, ethical or moral or self-interest. And um, a lot of people disagreed. And there was a gentleman, uh, Eric Hunley, H-U-N-L-E-Y, if you want to Google him, he's got a YouTube channel, in which he, meant, he brings up this point, and he talks about um, d- the different opinions from a couple of other professional card- uh, hypnotists who say the opposite. They, they say, yeah, you know, under the right circumstances, you can hypnotize people to do pretty much anything. Now, why is it that I say you can't? And two other professional hypnotists, you know, even more qualified than me, because they do it professionally. Why would they say you can, but I say you can't? Well, the difference has, is more to do with definitions than with disagreeing about the facts. If you dug into each of the individual facts that the other two hypnotists claim to be true, I will also agree they're true. But we're only, we're only differing on definition, and here's the problem. When you tell me, can you make somebody do something they don't want to do with hypnosis, I have limited my definition of hypnosis to a subject and a hypnotist who are trying to do the same thing. In other words, the subject wants to, let's say, conquer a fear, and the hypnotist wants to help them do that. That's your normal subject-hypnotist situation. Now, under that situation, by definition, the hypnotist is only doing things that the person wants. They want to get over their fear. So when I call it hypnosis, I mean a willing uh, situation in which the subject and the hypnotist are going for the same objective. So it's more of a definition thing. Now, could the hypnotist plant unwanted suggestions and get somebody to do something that they didn't want to do? Yes, they could. Could, could somebody who's not a hypnotist use the same tools of, uh, of persuasion and get somebody to do something that they really didn't want to do? And the answer is yes. In fact, you see that happen every single day. That would be called, let's say, uh, uh, persuasion. Like you prime somebody and then they think they made up their own mind, but they don't know they were primed. That's the thing. It's a book, persuasion. Uh, how about the, the written by uh, uh, Cialdini? Cialdini also wrote uh, Influence before he wrote persuasion. Influence is exactly a book about how people are influenced and don't know that they didn't make up their own mind. So you can show that people think they're making up their own mind, but they're actually just influenced. So is that somebody making somebody do something they didn't want to do? How about uh, advertising? How about propaganda? How about the fake news? How about selling? How about marketing? How about negotiating? Every one of those things gets you to do something you didn't want to do. 
<laughs> so if you ask me, can you make somebody do something you that they didn't want to do with hypnosis? I say, how about just get rid of the word hypnosis? Can you get people to do things they didn't want to do by talking to them or, you know, exposing them to, you know, stimulation? The answer is, yeah, all of these things do it. Advertising does it, marketing, negotiating, all of them. Let me make it even simpler. Let's say you planned to get some work done today and you were going to work hard and today was going to be a real good work day. And your best friend calls you and says, hey, it's a great day. Do you want to golf? And you say, no, I, I had today. Today was going to be work. I, I'm not going to golf. I'm going to work. And then your friend is like, mm, it's not going to be this good every day, you know, and you could, you could work tomorrow and that work will still be there. And by the way, you promised me that you would golf with me the next time it was a good day. And, and then finally you say, oh, all right. Uh, let's just go golf. So is that an example of you being hypnotized to go golf instead of work? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. That is an example of you being hypnotized, but you wouldn't call it that. You simply used a tool of hypnosis, which is directly asking for something, maybe you know, uh, comparing it to something else, using the, the concept of shortage. It's like, ah, oh, there won't be many great days. Uh, reciprocity, I did this favor for you. Why don't you golf with me? You know, you can imagine a whole bunch of techniques of hypnosis, but they're just a conversation. It's just you and your friend talking. Mm-hmm. Would you ever say that your friend forced you to do something you didn't want to do? Or would you say, no, I did what I want to do. I simply changed my mind about what it was I wanted to do. That's probably how you would filter it. You'd say, no, I just, I did what I want to do. I just changed my mind about what I wanted to do. Or did you? Because you wouldn't have changed your mind without that friend saying and doing the right things. That friend hypnotized you against your will because your will was not to go golfing, and you did. So this opens up an interesting question about free will. I would say that as a person who does not believe that free will. He goes on for a few. I don't know if we wanted to get into all of it. I'll put a link to the rest of the response. He spent almost 10 minutes talking about all of that, which I think is interesting. And I imagine you'd agree with a lot of what he said. Yeah, I think Scott and I are both. Uh, board-certified clinical hypnotherapist from an international board. I think Scott and I were certified under the same board. Mm. But I agree that the definitions are unusual. I think you had a, one of a super chat question up here from... I do, yeah. I was going Russia. to get to that next. Uh, but yeah, I agree with that in that you can absolutely be made to do something that you normally wouldn't do. I disagree with Scott that it's might be some, I can make you do something you don't really want to do. If I'm that good at influence, I'll just make you want to do it. And then you'll (laughs) want to do it. So, I mean, it's not a question of like, Oh, I don't want to do this. So then we'll have context and desire. So I can build something up and drive you towards that behavior. I could use hypnosis to do that. I can, I could drop somebody in the middle of a loud bar completely out in a trance and, 
three minutes or 30 seconds many times. Mm -hmm. But then it's the context. And then you have the, the super creepy uh, hip, hypnotist guy who was arrested in Seattle, I think, for uh, uh, molesting yeah. one of his clients or something. That like was that. actually in the video. I, I've got the tape where okay. he was doing it and the police literally came in the scene. So I got the police tape and put that in the same video. That's awesome. I'm glad they did it. But in, in a context like that, you change the desire plane that that person is on. So right now I don't want to get naked. Neither do you, Eric, especially. Oh, no. And they, by the audience, you don't want it. Trust me on this. You don't want that. I'm not tan daddy. <laughs> so in, in most situations, people don't really feel like I need to take my clothes off right now. But if you're under hypnosis and someone tells you that you're in the bathroom, you're getting mm -hmm. ready to go get in the shower. So the moral objection of like, this is against my morals to get naked is no longer there. The context has completely shifted what your morals will tolerate in a situation. So I think that's changing the reality around yeah. somebody in, in essence, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and that makes, makes total sense. Um, let me get, the, let's definitely get this question because hopefully you do know somebody, please recommend a hypnotist if possible in tri-state area for self-development slash optimization. Either way, appreciate Chase Hughes education. Now is tri-state Delmarva? I mean, I don't know which try. I don't know, Patricia, please send me an email at uh, chase at chasehughes.com. Perfect. And then, yeah, you could probably look somebody up if you don't know them off the top of your head. Okay. So changing the reality and all that, I kind of, I think I want to finish out talking to you. All right. What did I miss? Uh, Dragon's treasure said they want you to get naked. Uh, no, you tan daddy. They want tan daddy. They don't want me. They need to buy tea for me, but anyway, um, what um, about, okay, New York City tri-state area, duh, there we go, sorry, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, what do you think, and Scott Adams is starting to spin into that, about free will, he's of the belief that there, that we have no free will, I'm wondering where you fall on that spectrum. I know that's a, a highly debated item. If anybody wants torture, listen to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talk about free will for two hours. Free will is a human construct. It's a, okay. it's words that we're making up as humans. Free will just means we can make decisions. Yep. Then we've got it. So the definition of free will can be different. This could be a 9,000 hour long philosophical debate. <laughs> but from an anatomical debate, the part of our brain that makes decisions can make its own decisions. We can make up our own minds. We can choose to run a red light. And if we say that there is no free will, then we should let every criminal out of jail because they're not responsible for what they did. That, so yeah, that's kind of that's free kind will. Of well, that's kind of where I am. And I feel like your philosophy that you were talking about earlier about making choices for tomorrow, isn't that free will? Isn't that, you know, that, that discipline, isn't that kind of part of it? Yeah. Because if we have no free will, then we just do whatever we want. Right. Right now. Impulsively. Which we can. You could right. just randomly choose to subscribe to Eric Hunley's YouTube channel right now, just because you wanted to. 
That's right, because you do not have free will. In that instance, everybody, you have no free will. You must subscribe. Chase is a master hypnotist. He went to school. So this is a definite influence. Please subscribe. And actually, on that wonderful note, because I want to keep Chase coming back, and we're going to leave some things out there, what are we going to talk about next, Chase? Anything you guys want to. We could actually dig into how hypnosis works okay. and some secrets that you won't learn in any hypnosis class ever. And I can even yank someone into the camera next time we come online and show you how fast a person can be hypnotized. How's that? Perfect. And I will visit the end of this and we will see you within a month or two. Let's hope. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.